Hi Triber, we're back for the next season. Smart Girl Tribe has grown to become the UK's number one female empowerment organisation. We have an event series, a digital magazine, a membership platform and this podcast. What can you expect from us? Interviews from women all over the world who are driving change and pushing the needle forward. From actors to activists, to CEOs and conflict photographers, to the brains behind some of the world's largest corporations. When you're not tuned in every Wednesday at 6pm, then make sure you're chatting to fellow unapologetically ambitious women in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or sharing our ever so inspirational content on Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe. Happy New Year, Tribers. Here is to 2020. If you follow our journey on Instagram or even on Facebook, you'll know that we have some exceptional things coming up this year for Smart Girl Tribe. Now, welcome to our first episode of the year, my interview with Jennifer Nadel, the fantastic writer behind the book, We, a Manifesto for Women Everywhere, the brains behind Compassion in Politics, award-winning journalist and former Home Affairs editor of ITV. In this episode, we discuss Jennifer's career and writing with Hollywood actress Gillian Anderson, the nine principles of the book. We discuss if our insecurities as women come from our upbringings, self-care beyond bubble baths and herbal teas, achieving success as a woman in a male-dominated industry, and how you can get into journalism, and exactly how to answer the question, when are you going to be having children? Before I give too much away though, let's get right into it instead. First of all, just to start off, thank you so, so much. So what I, how I wanted to start was ask you really if you can give our listeners just a brief overview of your career because you have just a fantastic career and going through it all, I, I found it really insightful. So could you share maybe an overview of that and just the exceptional work that you have carried out? I've had so many different lives. You think when you're little, what am I going to be when I grow up? And you think there's going to be one... But now I know the answer is I'm going to be lots of different things. And particularly now, as we all work longer and the workplace has changed so much. So I began, what I really wanted to do was be a writer, but my family didn't want me to be a writer. They wanted me to earn some money. So I became a lawyer. But within four months of being a barrister, I realised I was too impatient. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to change laws. I wanted to make the the world around me fairer I wanted to try and alleviate suffering and being at the bar I found that I was often part of a system that was really really brutal and that things I wasn't going to be able to change anything quickly enough for my impatient self so then I went into journalism and had a really privileged time reporting for the BBC for Channel 4 News and then became ITV's Home Affairs Editor which was wonderful to open the paper in the morning and think what really exercises me today and to then be able to go and um, make news pieces about it and short films and and tell viewers what um, what I felt needed to be told and then I had a big bout of depression after my first two children were born so I didn't do anything I was very ill I was put on incapacity benefit And my life got very, very small. But that period enabled me to do a lot of deep digging and a lot of reconstruction of myself from the inside out because I thought all I needed to do was to succeed, to be on TV screens, and then I would be happy inside. But it doesn't work. You have to do the inside work, unfortunately. So I spent about 10 years doing that, and then I wrote a book about that with an actress called Gillian Anderson, who was also a friend that book was called We, A Manifesto for Women Everywhere, or now I think it's called We, Nine Principles for a Happier Life. And it really looks at the ways that I got myself out of that slump. And since then, I've been campaigning. I stood for Parliament a couple of times. And at the moment, I am the co-director of an organisation called Compassion in Politics, which is really trying to change the way we do politics and to alleviate suffering. So that's me for now but who knows what next no that's incredible that's really amazing again like you said you've had almost multiple lives and you've dipped into so many just magical industries I have found because it because it is true writing I have found doesn't necessarily pay the bills but or that's the minimum that it does but what it does do is you're just so 
rich in experiences and the people that you meet so you really have had a fascinating career journey so far so is that your current position now being the director of compassion for politics yes i'm the co-director i have um, a young guy called matt hawkins who i've worked with over the last 10 years so we we run it together so can i ask what your day-to-day looks like now is it as thrilling as being a barrister or a journalist do you know what it's so much more thrilling I felt this real sense of loss when I left each career thinking oh I'll never have so much excitement or be so stimulated or feel like I have such agency and actually I literally think I'm the happiest woman in the world the luckiest woman in the world I meant I each day is different I get to meet really interesting people sometimes I work from home sometimes I work from a cafe sometimes I work from the office that the campaign has been gifted so an average week will see me meeting politicians meeting psychologists meeting academics speaking at an event writing a newspaper article and thinking about strategy and and where to go from now now going back to almost the beginning and talking about the current climate obviously right now we are in until December 10th I believe it is we are in 16 days of action which is 16 days of action against domestic violence you wrote a book that was published in 1993 the story of a woman who killed which stresses how the legal system discriminates against victims of domestic violence do you think we do enough now for victims of domestic violence we absolutely do not and two things have been happening one is that refuges where women can go for safety with their children if you're in a violent relationship it's a very difficult thing to leave there's a lot of control you may not have access to your finances and you'll be very very scared about how to you know provide for your children and also the repercussions of living leaving a violent um, partner so but the number of refugees has been cut. This is particularly the case for black and minority ethnic women. It is very, very difficult to leave and not to have enough places for women who do want to leave to keep them safe is a national scandal. The other thing I was going to talk about was the fact that for serious crimes against women like rape, we've seen a reduction in prosecutions because the CPS doesn't want to take on cases it might not achieve a conviction in, but that literally is sending a message that women's bodies and women's lives don't matter nearly as much as they should. Wow, oh my gosh. So one thing that I have noticed is you're very much somebody who almost stands up for the little person, you know, being having been a lawyer, having been a journalist, you obviously have this great passion in social issues. One thing that I would say is we all struggle, particularly as women, as being kind toward ourselves. There are so many issues that we suffer with as women every day. When do you think this begins? Do you think it is society that at some point when we're growing up puts it on us? Does it come down to our upbringing? What are your thoughts around that? Well, a lot of it is to do with our parenting and self-care is so, so important. I mentioned that period of a really dark depression and that was all because I was doing this amazing job and not taking care of myself. And self-care begins when you're little, but if you haven't been taught how to take care of yourself, you can learn it as an adult. And there are certain societal messages which make it harder for us as women to do that. We like to see ourselves as caring and helpful and taking time out to care for ourselves can, we feel, look indulgent or selfish or self-centred. Why are we pampering ourselves when there are so many people in dire need? And that's certainly a trap that I've fallen into. But what I know now is it that if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't put our oxygen mask on first, we are of no use to other people. So it doesn't matter how awkward, selfish or indulgent it feels. It's absolutely essential that we take care of ourselves and that we get when we go into the world to try and do something we go in with a full tank of self-nurture because then we have something to give if we're running on empty we don't actually have anything else to give 
yeah, anyone else? Completely, I do completely agree. It's really interesting because this year I've had um, several, not too grave, but several health things going on because of stress. And everyone has told me, you really need to care for yourself more, you know, as a human, but particularly as a woman, because it's something we obviously struggle with and it's really been now as an adult the first time that I've actually heard this word that you need to really start loving yourself more start caring for yourself a lot lot more so for maybe our younger listeners do you have any maybe tips or tricks or exercises you think they can do to start loving themselves and caring for themselves a lot more I I do four things every day that I wish someone had taught me to do and they really do set me up each day to go into the world the first thing is that I do a little bit of meditation in the morning sometimes it's two minutes sometimes it's 20 minutes but just to take time out away from the world away from my head my thinking self and to settle into my calm deeper self which knows and which is connected to my instinct and my inner truth The second thing I do is I try, if I find myself catching myself in a negative loop in my head or I'm thinking self-attacking thoughts like you're too fat, you're useless, you're not as good as someone else, who do you think you are thinking you can do that, which I still can find myself thinking, I instantly interrupt that thought and I just say, I am enough, I have enough. I do enough and I say it as many times as I need to to get rid of that negative thought because negativity really brings us down and if we want to go out into the world shining then we need to stay in our positive selves and neutralize those negative messages. The next thing I do every day is write a gratitude list which is just writing down 10 things you feel really grateful for even if you don't think you feel grateful for them every day. So sometimes it'll just be, I've got two legs, I've got two arms, I can breathe, I have a roof over my head, I ate today. Other times it will be the beautiful sunrise or the daisy poking its head between the two paving stones. It doesn't matter what's on there, but just find 10 things that you're grateful for. And being grateful, even if we're having a really rough time feeling really bad, has an incredible transformative effect. So I really can't recommend it enough. And then the last thing is to take care of your body. You know, if you look at toddlers, most of us have been around toddlers. What happens if they don't eat when they need to eat? What happens if they don't sleep when they need to sleep? They have emotional meltdowns and we're no different. So three meals a day, make sure I do some exercise. It can just be a 20 minute walk and make sure I get enough sleep and enough downtime because our system needs to reboot. So those are the four tips that I wish I had. Now, I completely understand. And you have very much gone through an almost transformative journey from going from being depressed and having time out to now being able to talk about, you know, being self-aware and taking care of yourself. Have your friends and family always been supportive of this journey or I mean I definitely know some people when I meditate who just think it's a bit you know woohoo and things like this a bit hippy dippy have you found that or has everyone around you been always been supportive well it's so funny that you say that Scarlett because when I first started meditating I didn't want to tell anyone I actually felt ashamed and embarrassed Mm -hmm. that I was starting a practice that has been done for thousands of years by really wise brilliant people I somehow thought it would be really embarrassing so there definitely is that message that you know it can appear hippy dippy but actually it's life transforming and there's so much evidence that it can reduce stress levels that it can increase happiness that it can cure long-seated health problems so once I started coming out in the open I realized that actually it wasn't embarrassing. It was a really wonderful thing. And then I started to get other people wanting to find out how to meditate too. So it took a while for me to talk about it openly. But now, yes, I I do get support and encouragement. Do you think men and women or boys and girls approach self-care and self-love differently? Okay, well... 
I just have to say that I have had three children mm-hmm. with two different husbands. And at no point did either of those husbands not read the paper if they wanted to or not go to the football if they wanted to. At every point did I not manage to do anything because I absolutely was there 100% for my children and got exhausted and then depressed. So it really seems to be more innate. I think in our culture, boys and men feel it's more legitimate to do the things they need to do that keep them afloat but then there's a flip side of that which is that we as women and girls find it so much easier to talk to each other and to be emotional with each other so I wouldn't want to be a man despite all the privilege they still seem to have. No I completely I do completely agree now your most recent book called We a Manifesto for Women Everywhere first of all I do have to add obviously very much this podcast is not sponsored I said this at the event where we met it really is a phenomenal book it made me see things so differently so clearly and I remember thinking the two women who wrote this are just wonderful they're just wonderful human beings they're talking to the reader very personally everything was very relatable and you added stories in there which I found so compelling and powerful and we do have to say that the book explores nine principles for our readers and listeners who aren't aware they're honesty acceptance courage trust humility peace love joy and kindness and you say how they really serve as a compass for women seeking direction how did you come up with those nine principles well Gillian whom I wrote the book with and I just sat down And we knew we wanted to write about the experiences that we'd had. And also, you know, both of us have been in therapy since our teens. So we are so well analysed and have tried every single thing there is to try. Yoga retreats, spiritual retreats, psychoanalysis, medication, you name it. We have been seeking um, all of our lives, read all the great teachers And so we sat down and we thought, you know, what are the things that have really transformed our lives and which principles shine through? And those are the nine principles that really shone through as, if you like, the spine of the work that we have done and that we know can help anyone transform their lives. Wow. No, it really is. It is a phenomenal book. I am going to add a link in the podcast description so anyone who wishes to purchase it absolutely can because it really is. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. It really, really is. Now, you came up with those nine principles and you have said that you previously have been in therapy. For anyone who maybe can't afford therapy or maybe thinks that they're too young to explore that is there anything other than the four things that you do every day that you would say have strongly helped you well i i think the first thing is that you're never too young to start this journey of real self-knowledge and the sooner you do this foundation work of getting yourself on a strong emotional footing and finding your truth and and learning how to be able to say your truth and be comfortable with your truth the easier life gets and the happier life gets and you don't need to have a therapist to do this work you can read the book or you can just use those tools that I said just try writing a gratitude list every day of 10 things that you're grateful for even if you don't think there are any and it will start to change how you feel and another important thing is connection you know making sure that you connect with people that you can be honest with and that won't necessarily be the cool person that you really want to be your mate sometimes it helps to look around and think who's looking a bit lost because that lost person may be the person that helps you find your way ironically no i love that and throughout the book as well again it's called we a manifesto for women for anyone who didn't for women everywhere for anyone who didn't catch that How do you think, you do explore different feminine traits, how do you think the everyday woman can cultivate a space that allows for feminine traits? Because obviously you have previously been a barrister, lawyer, journalist, you have worked in very, very male 
dominated industries. First of all, I want to ask, did you find that really hard? And how did you allow yourself to explore your most feminine traits, but not only to explore them, but to celebrate them as well? Well, I did find it hard. It was not an inviting environment. It was very sexist and very chauvinistic. And I really lost myself. You know, I looked at what it took for a woman to succeed. And I thought it was about how I looked, what colour I dyed my hair, what makeup I wore, wearing heels that actually have damaged my feet for the rest of my life. I thought those were the things that would help me to fit in. But what happened was that that I did then make my way, but I made my way for the wrong reasons. I didn't make my way because I was asserting my true self. I got through because I was being my intelligent, passionate self, but I was sugarcoating it to make it easier for the men in the workplace to swallow. And I think that it doesn't have to be that way to the same extent anymore. So the journey I've been on and which I think many young women have got to way ahead of me is just really trying to be myself and not needing to use my sexuality in a way, not needing to objectify myself to make my way easier in the workplace. And that, in fact, gives me space to free up my real feminine self because there's this kind of faux femininity, this fake femininity that comes about pleasing the gaze of men. But then there's a real femininity which just comes from being our best glowing, perfectly imperfect female selves that has nothing to do with anyone else's gaze but is to do with our own. Now, because of the Me Too movement and the third wave feminism we are really experiencing at the moment, you're still very much connected to these industries. Have you noticed a difference? Have you seen a change? I don't think we've made as much progress as we should have done. I was watching the BBC News last night. There wasn't a woman talking about something intelligent for at least the first five minutes. The BBC just tried to organise an election debate which involves six men, not one woman. I mean, how are decisions like that made in our supposed age of equality? And funnily enough, I just came back from Australia where I was talking about compassion in politics there. And it was such a relief to watch the news because there were so many more women and they didn't have to be beautiful or coiffured or wearing the right shade of lipstick to be on television. And I long for the day that that can be the case here. And we need to change recruitment practices and all of those things. But we as women also need to say, no, we're not going to do that to ourselves anymore. We are going to be who we are. Men don't have to totter around in heels or squeeze themselves into tight-fitting clothes or blow-dry their hair three times a week and have their polish changed and their eyebrows waxed just to do a job and neither should we I completely agree it's really really interesting because I remember when I first started I obviously set up Smart Girl Tribe when I was a teenager when I was 19 and things were quite different then and I remember I would go into business meetings and it was hard enough I very much I didn't tell anybody how young I was even if I was asked for my age I would never ever share it in any article that was written about me I would make sure that my age was never shared because I just thought that older I have to say particularly men wouldn't respect me but I also noticed that that was a time in my life when I actually dyed my hair from blonde to brunette and I started dressing very differently trying to do the opposite because I'm naturally incredibly blonde I'm five foot one so I'm often in heels and I remember thinking nobody is going to take me seriously looking like this so I'm going to do the opposite so it was the exact same thing but almost in reverse I was worried people wouldn't take me seriously because of my appearance I think yeah just... and you're probably right you're probably right and and we do sell ourselves short when we conform to those tropes um, so you're right and you know you've done an amazing thing with smart girl tribe and all credit and congratulations to you it's wonderful what you've achieved thank you so much now one thing that I have found 
really interesting looking at the smart girl tribe statistics and our demographic is 42 percent of our audience is males so for all of the young men out there what do you obviously they're growing up they're a completely different ge uh, generation to maybe the men who are i don't know currently in their 60s and 50s or maybe you know just a bit more old school so for our younger male listeners what can they do every day to really make sure that they are pushing the needle forward they're also trying to break those barriers and support women i think stay soft know that you don't need to be perfect know that winning doesn't necessarily involve women winning sometimes it's better to be happy than it is to be right and also to call it out if you hear another bloke speaking about women in a way that isn't acceptable name it because you saying it as a man has so much more power than us trying to confront a sexist man who's clearly in flow so um yeah i'm grateful all the times i've seen that happen and keep doing it you said you have recently returned from Australia and you're about to jet off to America. Can I ask how often do you travel? Do you love travelling because of your job? And maybe can you share the most compelling story that has really stuck with you the most? I absolutely love travelling, but I try not to travel as much as I would like to because of climate change. So I go if I feel I'm going to achieve some good by going um, and I also travel a lot by train which is a great way and it really slows everything down and I've I've had so many wonderful travel experiences but I think the most powerful was when I was sent to what used to be called Yugoslavia to um, report on the war there and all the male reporters who were there were talking about how many rounds of ammunition had been fired and what sorts of rockets were being launched and no one was really talking to the people who are having to live in the state of war so we went into the refugee camps and spoke to the women and their stories were heartbreaking and we put them out on the news and and now it's much more common for that to happen but at the time it wasn't and I still feel a huge debt of gratitude to those women who were courageous enough in the, that extreme situation to share their stories so that we could really try and convey what the brutality of war means for women. In a conflict situation women are at greater risk than a uniformed soldier so that mm. just shows how women are the unsung victims of war oh my goodness that is that's fascinating that's so insightful that really is um that's really well there's really a fantastic charity who any if anyone wants to find out more about it called women for women and that charity just works with women in conflict or post-conflict zones and it does incredible work so do have a look at it if you're interested in in that side of things and trying to make a difference. That's really interesting because I've just interviewed the executive director, Brita Fernandez-Schmidt mm. from She's Women, wonderful, Women isn't she? she is incredible, she really is. But I've just interviewed her and her episode will be going live as well. And she really opened up about women in conflict. She shared, it was very emotional. She shared some really personal stories, but overall she is just a phenomenal, force to be reckoned with just like yourself really for our audience maybe our listeners who want to be journalists would you recommend that they get a degree in journalism would you say it's just more important that you get yourself in there in the door what would be your advice there well I never studied journalism and I think getting your degree you should get your degree in something you love and you can bolt on your work skills afterwards. You can do a short journalism course. And what I did was I studied something else, but I got a job volunteering at the local radio station. I wrote for the student newspaper. I then went and did reviews for the local newspaper. So, you know, in, for a wider circulation, I then set up my own magazine. And all of those things helped. I, I did interviews with 
politicians that I thought would never say yes to me when I wrote to them saying, I'm a student, can I interview you for my magazine, which I have to be honest, didn't have very many readers. Mm -hmm. And people say yes. So you don't need to study journalism to become a journalist or to be a journalist. Did but you... obviously, if that's your passion, then it's it's a great thing to study. But if, if you've got a real love of something that you feel really passionate for, do that and you'll get the professional skills as you go along. Did you really have to fight tooth and nail to go up the ranks in journalism? Did you have to fight your way to the top or was it quite natural? Was it what was it promotion after promotion and then you got yourself there? I wish I could say that it just flowed but it didn't flow it was horrible I had to do really really horrible jobs I had to do night shifts which made my period stop I had to work in really toxic male environments where men were very dismissive of women I had to do jobs that I didn't like I had I won't go into the bosses I had and how they behave really really appallingly but I didn't mind because I knew what I wanted to do. I set a very clear goal. I gave myself five years and goal setting is so important. And I said, I'm going to give myself five years to try and become a national television reporter reporting on social justice issues and doing a job that I feel can make a difference. And if it doesn't happen, then I'll go and do something else. And I was really lucky three days before those five years ran out, I was um, made ITV's home affairs correspondent and then editor so goals matter but so does trying and persevering and not giving up and you know if that five-year mark had passed I should have carried on because most of the people I know now that I'm really hideously old actually gloriously old <laughs> is that the thing that life rewards most is perseverance as I can't remember who it was who said it, maybe you can, whether it was Einstein or someone else, that it's 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. That's so true, actually. I completely agree. I have always said there could be a 100, if not thousands of women who could be in my position, but the only difference between them and I is very much perseverance. It's the fact that I never, ever stopped when somebody said no to me because that's what success if you want to call it success is it's just persevering and getting through all of the no's for the hope that one day you'll get a yes and then one thing leads to another but it all comes down I have always said that that the difference between if you want a loser and a winner is very much perseverance absolutely and you're a perfect example of it look at you Thank you. Now were, did you were you a lawyer before you were a journalist because you said you're uh, family didn't want you to become a writer yes I did in fact they made or persuaded me to study law and I I was such a lost teenager that I didn't have the confidence to say no I'm not going to study law I'm going to study something I really love so I studied law at university and then had a year at bar school and then went off to do my pupillage which is when I realized that it wasn't for me so when was the moment when, can you remember that day when you decided, you know what, rather than carry on doing something that I'm really dreading every day, I'm going to go and pursue my passion and do something I love? I do remember the moment I made that decision, but it wasn't clear cut like that. I had to create the opportunity for myself to be able to leave the law. So what I did was I, I worked during the week at, on my pupillage with my barristers that were I was following around and then at the weekends I took on an unpaid internship at a tv station and did that for quite a long time until a job came up and I was then in a better place to get the job at it was an American news channel at that channel because I'd done that interning and then once I was offered the job I was able to leave so I kind of had my idea of what I was going to do but I then had to do the prep work and do you know do the perspiration to try and create the opportunity so that I did have uh, an exit strategy. Looking back is there anything that you would change about your career journey or your path? I've loved everything that I did I think I would have worried less I was really so driven and if I had any setbacks I would 
catastrophize and think this is the end of everything. I wish I'd relaxed. I wish I'd allowed myself more fun, more joy, and not and not had the fear that it wouldn't work unless I put absolutely all of me into it because I don't think it has to be that way. I think I tried far too hard, but I'm really grateful for the opportunities life has given me. Now, you two have said you're a self-confessed goal setter, which I very am much, you know, I goal set twice a day, morning and evening. I write down my goals, my vision, where I see myself going. Is that something that you recommend? Or looking at your whole career, would you say you have achieved balance now and maybe you shouldn't have done that so much at the beginning? Or would you just not have changed your mentality at all? I have got a balance now that I certainly lacked as a young woman and that goal setting I've learned quite late in life. I mean, I did set that big goal for where I wanted to be and I did have a big vision for what I wanted in my life, but I didn't set those little daily goals and I've only just started doing that and it's brilliant. I mean, I'm a multitasker who achieves nothing because I'm constantly working on so many different things, but when I do do exactly what you said, what am what are my goals for this morning's tranche of work weirdly i managed to get them done wow no i completely i love goal setting i really do i don't know if that's a good or bad thing it's just the way that i'm wired it's something i really fundamentally enjoy i love the idea that i am on a journey and at the end of it i'm where i'm really working towards something i have a purpose rather than for me it's everybody's completely different as opposed to waking up every day thinking oh this is what i'm this is what my day looks like today this is what i fancy doing i'm very much this is what i'll be doing and when i'll be doing it i just like to look back on the day and think oh i really did something proactive pro productive if you like so coming and that's sorry, also Adam. where a gratitude list is helpful because if you do have a productive day then you can look back over your day and think wow I did manage to get that done or I really, really didn't want to do that. But you know what? I did it. And then you get a kind of second hit of satisfaction from the fact that you have managed to do things that have worth and productivity. Yeah. Now, you said you very kindly opened up about when you had depression after giving birth to your children we obviously at smart girl tribe focus a lot on mental health and it's one of our most popular categories for anybody out there listening who is going through either a really really blue period you know we are coming up to the holidays and things or maybe somebody who has suffered from depression for years how did because you said your time was really genuinely dreadful how were you able to pull yourself out of it well It was partly so dreadful because I did not know how to take care of myself. But often when I'm feeling low or feeling depressed, I have to let go of something. And I picture that I'm in a hot air balloon and I look around me and and the balloon is going down. And I think, what do I need to let go of to enable this balloon to soar? So sometimes I'll be pushing myself too hard. Sometimes I'll have an impossible to-do list sometimes I will be trying to make a relationship work that doesn't work and so if I can let go and just feel sad that what I wanted to happen didn't happen then the balloon gets lighter and I start to gain height again and get more sunlight and things start to get better but it does sometimes involve some pain because often one of the things for me in my life that has caused depression is trying to avoid real pain so instead of feeling heartbroken that a relationship isn't working for example I will keep trying to make that relationship work and I will start feeling worse and worse and worse because inside I know it's not working but I don't want to let go and I don't want to think about a future without that person but if I'm willing to be courageous and face whatever it is I don't want to face and go okay this is going to hurt but I'm going to go through it I'm willing to take the hit in order to have my emotional freedom, then sometimes the depression can shift more quickly. And the other thing that someone told me that I really hung on to was that if your head is telling you that you're shit, that you're no good, that you're a failure, that you're a loser, that you'll never find love, or any of those other 
horrible messages we can so easily find ourselves giving to ourselves there's something wrong you know that is not we're human beings we're meant to flourish and just ride it out sometimes I think it's like having having a mild depression obviously if, if it persists then you need to get medical help and thank god we live in an age of antidepressants but sometimes I think that we forget that we are meant to flourish and that that really negative thinking is sometimes like about a flu it's it's emotional flu we're just having a bad time because our head has lost its way and dragged us into a pit wow that's really sound advice now one question i would love to ask maybe slightly controversial but i would really love to know your personal opinion obviously you're an advocate for mental health having gone through something and you do i said this on the day that i met you you do give brilliant advice from those struggling but you've also been a journalist so looking at maybe Meghan markle's situation where she has come out and said that the tabloids very much affect her mental health and talking about her can i ask your views on that situation having been on both sides if you like of Meghan Markle's situation mm, yes well I really feel for her I really really feel for her um and it is very difficult but that's where the letting go comes in because if you ride every bump and you fight every fight you're going to end up in a real mess and sometimes it's just about accepting that this is the nature of the role and this is what happens so it depends how resilient she is but deciding to ride into battle about it can sometimes cost more than it actually gains but I have huge respect for her and her honesty and her integrity about speaking out about it. Wow now I have said this before you are so inspirational can I ask who inspires you who is somebody maybe our readers and listeners need to look up today? Oh, well, I was going to say someone you couldn't look up, which is my aunt, who's 99 and escaped from the Holocaust as a child and has remained throughout her life the most positive person I have ever met. She does not allow what happened, what she saw, what she experienced to get in the way at all. And when I ask her, how do you do that, Aunt Elsa? You know, how do you stay so positive given all that's happened to you she just says love I give love and when I give love I receive love and I'm so lucky and so blessed so she's she's my big figure of inspiration oh my goodness no I can completely relate to that as well with my grandparents and it is incredible how you can look up to people and think oh my gosh I was recently asked at a talk how can I be so positive and I just simply replied how can I not be I look at my great-grandmother and yeah exactly she went through the second world war and went through you know really deep dark you know poverty during that time and things like this but still remained the most gracious person I have to this day ever met it really is remarkable looking at our inner circle and those who are immediately around us and how much they can inspire us absolutely totally and also when we're looking for heroes often that's a dangerous thing because we put someone on a pedestal and then they fall off so actually the people that often most inspire me aren't people that anyone's heard of they're people who show up for life that are consistently kind that are thoughtful and that stay positive no matter what now can i ask what are the five essential reads then or maybe even podcasts that you love that you would recommend to our listeners and readers okay i'll do some self-help and some not self-help so the book that really is my bible is a very old-fashioned tiny book called the way to love and it's written by a former priest who was actually thrown out of the priesthood called anthony de Mello. And it just absolutely centers me every time I'm lost and helps me to deal with knocks in life. But it is written in quite old-fashioned language. Another old-fashioned language book that I love is The Prophet by Cahill Gibran. You may have heard sections of it read at weddings and other occasions, but it's absolutely beautiful and really lifts me up. Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. 
it's quite an old book, but I had that as an audio book and it absolutely helped to retrain my mind. So when I was in a negative space, I would play it again and again and again. And then um, I just read a lovely book called Shame on Me by Tessa McWatt, which is a really beautiful story about race and gender and finding yourself in this crazy world in which we live, which I really loved. And then I guess for sheer beauty, Anna Karenin, which is my favourite kind of classic novel as it's just so rich and emotional and wonderful. I love that book. I spent, I think it was a summer when I was 15 reading that book and I went through all of it. I adored it. Now you just mentioned setbacks, being knocked. Can I ask what has been your greatest obstacle, do you think? Because you have gone through some really tough things, Jennifer, I have to say, in multiple different fields and industries. Well, on a personal level, I'm just going through a divorce and that is really, really unpleasant because you have all the emotional knocks and then you have the financial knocks and then you're trying to keep the home steady for your kids. So, and then you're trying to keep on top of your work at the same time. So I find the emotional knocks the hardest thing. And, you know, the decision I made for myself, my husband left, the day he left was, I'm not going to let this rob me of my joy. And I make sure that I have joy in my life, irrespective of how sad I may feel or how wronged or upset I may feel. And that has worked really well. And I've realized that I can put that negative stuff in a little compartment and get on and have a good day irrespective of what's happening with that so those emotional setbacks I find difficult and also you know when I had my big depression I had to let go of my career I had to let go of everything I'd worked for and become someone who didn't do anything people would say what did you do and and I didn't have an answer I remember that deep sense of shame and that was a real journey learning to let go of how I defined myself in the world and to realise that I was enough, that I didn't need to have an amazing job or be doing something to be of worth, that I intrinsically, as we all do, have worth irrespective of what the world says about us or irrespective of what we're doing in the world. No, I'm really sorry to hear that you've not only gone through a tough time, but that you're going through it. That sounds really horrible. I mean, again, this comes back down to your resilience I guess you seem like a really genuinely resilient and kind person and I have to agree with your aunts by giving love you receive love but also what you said at the very beginning that it comes down to we have to look inward at ourselves and see what we can do to move forward so that was very much emotional in the two big industries that you have been a part of journalism and being a barrister can I ask what one did you find harder Goodness, well, the bar was extraordinary because it's very, very hierarchical. And I remember going for my interview to get my pupillage, which is like an apprenticeship that you have to do. And they offered me the apprenticeship. And then they rang me afterwards and said, just to warn you that we won't be offering you a job because we've already got a woman in our chambers. So that was a chambers of 20 people. They had 19 men and one woman. And they were willing to let me be an apprentice, but that they just wanted to make sure I didn't get ideas above my station. Oh, my gosh. And think that I may actually be employed. So that was one. And then um, journalism was pretty similar, but less hierarchical. And I think the language of being a barrister was quite intimidating to me because I I didn't really know how it worked and it felt like I was always having to pretend to be someone and journalism was a lot easier because it was a lot closer to just being able to express myself in normal everyday words and also being able to tell my truth in normal everyday words so I definitely on reflection think journalism was easier. Do you think law or sexism in the legal system has changed and I come back to this because When I was younger, there was a very, very brief period in my life where I too started thinking, would I like to be a lawyer? I was part of the debate society at both in my school and at university. So I had a lot of people around me really encouraging me 
to explore that field but I remember a really wise woman approached me and she said don't go into that industry because you'll find it tough to get to the top because it is so male dominated and they like to keep their positions and she couldn't see it changing and that really really stuck with me do you think it has changed or do you think it's pretty much the same as it was back then well it has changed in that we now have I think more women training to be barristers than men which certainly wasn't the case in my day and at the lower levels of the law I think that women outnumber men or at least they're equal but the problem is that when women get to a certain age when they want to raise families and have children or maybe they have caring responsibilities they they get blocked there so that the top is still dominated mainly by men and there are a lot of good people working in both law firms if you're going to become a solicitor or in barristers chambers who want to change the equality but the problem is that the way we all work is structured around being a worker that doesn't have kids and doesn't have caring responsibilities so it's still very much rigged towards the male worker but there is there is space to get further now as a woman and also to help break through that ceiling what are your thoughts having been a working well were you a working mum have you worked all throughout your children's upbringing well I was working and then I became ill so I had a really stark comparison between being a working mother leaving the house at eight every morning sometimes not being able to put them to bed and then being a full-time mum, albeit because I had had to let go of work through through mental ill health. And it is really difficult. It is really difficult. And I look at all the working mums at my son's school, and they're all fulfilled and vibrant to greater or lesser extents, but they're always missing out on something. And then I talk with the mums who have stayed at home, and they always feeling like they're missing out on something so we still haven't found a way of having it all and anyone who tells you that we can isn't being honest it's always a compromise and a trade-off and we still haven't got to the place where we can happily be mothers with a working life that fits perfectly around that and there are exceptions and those exceptions are growing but we're not there yet do you think we ever will be I hope we will be. I like to hold out the space that we will be, mainly because I don't think the way we work serves men either. It isn't just women that suffer from that. You know, increasingly, men want to help raise their kids and want to be there for an ageing relative and don't want to work every hour that God's given. So when enough of us say, actually, this isn't any good, things will start to shift. And you can see in some of the Scandinavian countries, they've made huge inroads into getting dads to really parent equally which then means that women can work quite happily and go much further so there are inroads happening but we all need to do it and I don't know if you read about the suggestion recently that we have a four-day week you know all the research shows that we're much more productive if we have a four-day week so if both genders were having a four-day week then that would only mean three days of childcare rather than five what would you say to maybe a woman in her I mean I'm definitely one I'm in my 20s right now and I had the same questions when I was in my early 20s I'm in my mid 20s now and I get asked a lot what will happen to my business when I want to start a family and I obviously am fully aware and because I've had this conversation with him my boyfriend doesn't get asked those questions it's very much just implied that he will be working and I'll be the one staying at home and I'm already starting to feel quite guilty and I'm not even close to thinking about having children yet so what would you say to all of the female listeners listening in today thinking oh my gosh I can completely relate to that is it something where we need to kind of reel it in and start talking to ourselves and start saying to each other you know what it's okay you're not there yet kind of cross that bridge but that's society's problem or do we need to be looking a bit more outward and suggesting to other people in our fields and industries and bosses well actually that question that you asked 
that's just not, you know, it's not appropriate and it's not allowed. And it very much is very, very driven or asked from women, but rarely asked from men. Well, I think it's brilliant that you've picked up on that point. And anyone who's in a position where they can say that to their boss, then say it. And especially before you have kids, because when you've got your kids, it sounds like you're special pleading. But if you're a young woman saying that's not okay, bosses are learning and they need to learn. So I think that's a great approach. But the other thing is that there are more and more ways of working that are emerging now that don't have to mean the level of angst and conflict that I had in my, when my kids were little, my first kids were young and I was working absolutely crazy hours. I mean, you've got your own business. You can make it as child friendly as you want. You can work whatever hours that you want. You can put your business in your off in your kitchen if you want. Um, I'm not suggesting that that's the most productive way of doing things. But we as women can start changing things. You know, why do we have to commute to some sterile glass fronted building and sit there like battery chickens doing our work why can't we work in our sweat top or why can't we work in our coffee top coffee shop or with our kids around our feet so I think certainly your generation is the one that is really going to shift the dial and I'm so excited about that and talking about that what is your vision for the future obviously being a goal setter have you got many objectives coming up or are you going to see the new decade in and just see what will be, will be? I have a goal which is related to my compassion in politics work, which is to introduce a piece of legislation which would say that no laws can be passed that would cause harm to the most vulnerable in society. So I want to introduce a threshold so that you can't pass laws that lead to an increase in homelessness, an increase in hunger, an increase in suffering. I just want that outlawed. It's common sense. It's the values that we all have, that we don't kick people when we're down, and we certainly shouldn't be having our governments do that. So that is my goal. That sounds amazing. No doubt you'll achieve that. I have absolutely no doubt at all, Jennifer. And now we did say throughout this podcast that you have just come back from Australia. You're heading off to America. Do you set up these trips yourself? Do you go and investigate and find out where you're needed? Or does a team member advise you? How does that work? At the moment, it's really whomever asks us, and we're working very closely with some Australian academics, and they invited me over and set up a whole schedule of talks and meetings. And the same with America. I was invited over there, so that's why I'm going. And obviously, America needs compassion in politics even more than we do. (laughs) And certainly as much as. So I'm really happy to be going out there. And we've also got a group starting in Scotland, which I'm really excited about. So it's lovely when when you're able to take the work you've been doing to another country and have it warmly received. It's the best feeling. Completely. What is the mantra you live by or your favourite quote? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a really good question. Oh, um, I think often it's... It's thy will. You know, it's whatever happens, I will be okay. It's mm. all gonna be okay. So I think I think I think it's really just about surrender. Surrender to whatever is and then you can adapt yourself to whatever the situation is. Okay, I've remembered my favourite quote while I was <laughs> waffling on then, which is um if I can stop one human heart from breaking I will not have lived in vain wow that is powerful it is and it means I don't have to change the whole world I don't have to change anything I just have to show up for another human being and try and alleviate their pain and my job is done on this earth I think everybody needs to hear something like that quite often we forget especially now and you know, as a businesswoman, you're trying to impact so many lives, but it does come down to that. I've always, always said, no matter what talk I'm at or who is listening to into the podcast or who's reading articles on the website, I have always said, 
even if it only affects that one person, that is just as powerful as affecting maybe 10 because you have no idea what that one person is going through. Absolutely. Or what their kids might then go on to do in the world as a result of the stress that you alleviated from that mother or father. We just don't know what the ripple effect of our actions might be. Completely. And where can our listeners and readers find you, Jennifer? I am on Twitter at Jennifer D. Nadel. I'm on Facebook, Jennifer Nadel. I have a page, Instagram, the same. And also on my website, jennifernadel.com. And my surname, Nadel, is spelt N-A-D-E-L. And everyone should go and pick up your book, We Are Manifesto for Women Everywhere right now yes please yes please and i'm going to start doing some workshops in the new year and some coaching so do get in touch if that's of interest and also please do sign up to compassion in politics we need all of your support to try and help turn this horrible political situation around absolutely well thank you so much jennifer for coming on today is there anything extra you would like to add No, just that it's so lovely to have this woman-on-woman conversation and so lovely to be interviewed by someone who's so honest and available and I love it. There's nothing better than one woman talking to another woman about the things that matter most, so thank you. I completely agree. No, thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you and absolutely, no doubt, I'll probably be bumping into you at another event soon. I hope so. I hope so. Thanks, Scarlett. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Bye. Bye.